Our Father in heaven, it's been great for us this morning to be able to take in everything that we have already and uh, to be able to sing to you and to pray and to break the bread, drink the cup and remember what you did for us. Now, now we come to you looking for your wisdom and looking for instruction. As newborn babes, here we come to your word that we might grow thereby. The milk of your word. We pray that you would feed us and that we would receive your word with believing hearts and with a desire to be doers of it and not hearers only. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you still save those who come to you, Lord Jesus Christ, in faith. Thank you that you still save those who call upon your name, Lord Jesus. And I pray that through the preaching of your word today, that those who are saved would have their faith in you strengthened. And if there is anyone who's come in that has not yet been saved, that they would be saved today by believing the gospel. Let it come through clearly, Lord, I pray. And we pray that your spirit would be at work in every hearer today. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 12. Let's get right into it. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than that temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. Jesus never backing down or taking a break from it. He departed from there and went into their synagogue. It's still the Sabbath, is the idea. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored as whole as the other. 
Then the Pharisees said, What great wisdom Jesus has. How much we have learned from him. And praise the Lord that this man's hand has been... Oh wait, no, 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 that's not what it says. Then, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Wow. Well, you know how it goes on the Sundays that we have the Lord's Supper. I don't know if we'll get through all this or not, and I'm not too concerned if we don't. So let's just say that up front. We'll just say as much as, as we can here today and let everyone out at a reasonable time to enjoy the rest of your Sunday. But here we are on this day, coming before God's Word with a great opportunity to learn here some more. Um, it is pretty amazing that we come to this passage having not planned it this way. Last Sunday, of course, was the Sunday that immediately followed our youth group retreat. And as a sort of an informal tradition, I guess, I give my sermon time on that Sunday morning to a recounting for the entire congregation of what we did uh, at the youth group retreat. And, of course, we talked about encountering Jesus, and we listed out and talked through some examples of people who had encountered Christ and what happened in those encounters. And if you recall, on two of those encounters, Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, right? He healed a man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And he healed, very famously, the blind man on the Sabbath. And if you recall, when he healed them, almost the same thing happened that happened here. There was resentment. There was a religious resentment of what Jesus had done because in spite of the fact that he had done something astonishingly, immeasurably, invaluably good for the people that he blessed, the religious leaders could not see beyond the fact that he had as they would understand it, violated the Sabbath. How sad. Yet how common and how predictable. And I believe, and I, I haven't really understood it this clearly until like now, but I believe that so committed, so resolute was our Lord Jesus in counteracting this religious, false, self-justifying piety of the Pharisees in the way that they handled the law and specifically the Sabbath, that when Jesus told the man by the pool of Bethesda to pick up his bed and walk, it was on purpose. He could have just healed the guy and left. But after he healed him, he said, pick up your bed and walk, knowing full well that this would be an offense to the religious leaders who were abusing the Sabbath. And same with the blind man who he healed, who he didn't just heal from his blindness, but made clay with his spit and with some dirt and rubbed it on the man's eyes and then said what? Go over to the pool and wash it off. Which would have been seen as a violation of the Sabbath, that he was washing his eyes in the pool on the, on the Sabbath. Again, Jesus not only doing a wonderful thing, but deliberately doing it in a way so as to counteract the false 
religious piety that the Pharisees were imposing by their interpretation of the law, and specifically the law of the Sabbath. So, here we are in this passage then. Again, I didn't plan it this way, but we just happened to do that last week, sort of off schedule of our going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. But then now today, we get back on going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And what do we have? We have Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And there aren't, there aren't a lot of references, direct references. I mean, it seems like because, because the intensity of the conflict over this is so strong, and because even when Jesus doesn't heal on the Sabbath, he still like senses that he's being accused of that. Because that seems to come up. It seems like this is throughout the whole gospel. But really, other than the, the guy at the pool of Bethesda, the blind guy in John chapter 9, and, uh, and this, this fellow with the withered hand here, I mean, really the only other healings on the Sabbath that you come across in the gospels are uh, there is a woman who is loosed from an infirmity, that she had for 18 years. That's in Luke chapter 13. There's a fellow who is healed from dropsy on the Sabbath. That's in Luke chapter 14. That's about it. You know? And, but, but Jesus, He always... It, it seems like it's this major issue, and it is. Jesus, our Lord, if you read the passage carefully, actually confronts two things. Two things in this passage. One, He confronts the Pharisees, and the way that they wield the law in general. He knows, our Lord, what the law is and what the purpose of the law is. And the Pharisees are imposing the law upon the people in such a way that the law is actually being prevented from accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent. And the Lord has come to set that straight. And, of course, the second thing, and the more notable thing, maybe, in the passage that the Lord is confronting is the specific law concerning the Sabbath. Right? So, there's the law in general, and the way that the Pharisees are using that, and then there's the specific law concerning the Sabbath, which is maybe the bigger part of the passage. So, so let's just kind of go through this and take it a verse at a time, and make some observations, and then hopefully after all that we'll have time to, to make a reasonable conclusion at the end. So we're told that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, right? Doesn't seem like too much harm there. Then His disciples were hungry, right? Not aware of any prohibition against eating on the Sabbath or being hungry. So, what did they do? As they were walking through the grain fields, they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And you know, it's pretty well known that Israelite farmers were to leave a certain amount of the field or leave a certain amount of what was harvested just there for a poor person to be able to glean, which is a, just a wonderful provision of God's mercy and love that was part of His law. But here they are on the Sabbath and they began to walk through the fields because they were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. And the Pharisees saw it, and they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And note that phrase, not lawful. It is not lawful for them to do this on the Sabbath. They are being accused 
of being lawbreakers. They are being accused of being opposed against the religion. They are being accused of being against God and against the temple and against everything that entails, against the scriptures, against the whole religious system. And they're being condemned. This is a strong condemnation that the religious leaders are making against these disciples of Jesus. They're doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus immediately responds, no hesitation, but He said to them, now the first thing we should note before we read it, is what does Jesus do here? How does Jesus clear up this misconception, this mishandling of the law that the Pharisees are practicing? He goes to the Bible, right? Now, later in the passage, Jesus says He's Lord of the Sabbath. So, it would be perfectly sufficient for Jesus to simply wield His authority and just tell them, no, be quiet, go away. But Right? Sure, Jesus could do that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does, as an example, I think, for us and for His own disciples then even, what we ought to be able to do, which is to be able to understand the Scriptures, to study the Scriptures, to know them, and to be able to make a correct and proper application of them to daily living. Right? That we might honor the Lord. Certainly, if the point of the law and the point of the Scriptures was simply to prohibit this activity that His disciples were part of, Jesus, I'm pretty sure, would have stopped it Himself without the Pharisees even needing to point it out. But Jesus knows the Word. After all, the Word is His, right? So, Jesus knows the Word. So, the first thing you see Jesus do here is quote from the Scripture. Or not quote it literally, but at least refer to it. And he's talking to Pharisees, so certainly the people he's talking to would have been well aware of the passage of Scripture that he's referring to, which happens to be in 1 Samuel. Um, It says, uh, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? Interesting that Jesus, of all the stories he picks, he picks one that refers to David, he himself as the Messiah being what? The son of David, the descendant of David. That's a little side point. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. What did he do? He entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Right? So the first thing that Jesus does is quotes scripture and asks them, haven't you read this passage of scripture? which shows, which would reveal in this conversation what? Not anything specifically about the Sabbath, right? But specifically about the law itself. That the Pharisees were interpreting the law in such a way that you either had to keep it or you were not justified before God, right? I mean, that's really the point. What's revealed here is that the Pharisees, in the way that they wielded their religious power, They had the people kind of under their thumbs thinking that it was the keeping of the law that would justify themselves before God. Has it ever been the case that keeping the law would justify oneself before the Lord? Of course not. Right? And 
But that's clearly what it was that the Pharisees are after. And so Jesus quotes this story. And if you're not familiar with it, you can read it for yourself later. I'm not going to take the time now. But uh, the priest was a man named Ahimelech. And in, you can write, read it right in the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is on the run, like he always seemed to be from Saul. You know, And he's running. And uh, he and his band of men, they come to where the tabernacle is. And... They are hungry, and there is no bread for them to eat anywhere. And so he goes to the priest, to Ahimelech. And if you read in the law, if you read in Exodus, if you read the instructions that God gave to Moses concerning the, uh, the establishment of the tabernacle, which would all ultimately, in its permanent form, become the temple in Jerusalem, you, you would read that, uh, there were on tables in the temple these stacks of bread, stacks of these small, presumably flat, flat, unleavened loaves of bread. And they had their symbolic meeting, meaning in the tabernacle. But aside from all of that, it was bread, right? And, you know, when you're starving, guess what? Bread is bread, right? And so they come to the temple... And they're hungry. Not the temple, but the tabernacle. Now, what happened to that bread? That bread was eventually eaten, and it was constantly replaced with fresh bread. But when that bread was eaten, it was not eaten just by anybody. The bread was eaten only by the priests themselves. That was part of the, the symbology of the, the religious system that was made. But what we're told is that when David came into the temple, David was hungry, and so Ahimelech, the priest, gave him what? Gave him this showbread, and he and his companions, they ate it. And then God struck them down with lightning from heaven. No, he didn't. I mean, David was, David was God's chosen one eventually to become king, right? But in that act, what does it show us? Does it show us that God just flagrantly disregards his own laws. Of course not. Jesus himself said what? Back in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the first things we've recorded in Jesus' teaching that he said was, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Right? So it's not that the law was like this evil thing or this bad thing. Of course, God is the one who gave the law. But you see that the law by this one act as it happened back in the day and as Jesus is making reference to it in his conflict with the Pharisees, we are shown that the law had a purpose beyond simply people keeping it. Right? The law did not exist for the purpose of giving people a religious system by which they could justify themselves before God. If it did then Ahimelech was wrong. David was wrong to eat that bread. David would have been a lot better off starving to death and letting his men starve to death than to eat that bread. If eating that bread or abstaining from eating that bread were part of this grand religious complex system by which he could justify himself before God. But of course, it isn't. The law had a purpose. We live at a time where we understand things, as the Bible says, that prophets of old longed to be able to look into. 
The Bible describes the gospel as a mystery. When the Bible describes something as the mystery, it's talking about something that was not clearly understood until Christ came along and did what he did and made it clear to us. We living when we live, we can understand this clearly. And it's in fact explicitly stated by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. And that is that the purpose of the law was not to give man a system by which he could justify himself, but to teach a man that he is sinful before God, that he might be humbled and brought to repentance and realize the need that he has for God's mercy and for God's grace, the fulfillment of all that being in Jesus himself and the sacrifice that he made. You understand that? The Pharisees were wielding the law in such a way that it was keeping people in darkness when in fact the law, if understood properly, shined light upon people's hearts that they might see their own sin and recognize the only way that they could be saved, the only way they could be redeemed was by God's grace. This, of course, was true before there was a law. It was true all the way back to the days of Abraham. Many generations before Moses was even around, we are told that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it should be no mystery to the Pharisees or to anybody else. To, and think about it. To any practitioner of that law, they would know as plain as anyone who could read anything in the law that the law did not come about back when God first called Abraham to himself. It was many generations before a law was given. What does that do? That proves that the law can justify no man. Hey, what I'm saying to you here is not something I just figured out on my own. This is the basic premise for the whole book of Romans. You know, and Paul makes reference to Abraham in the whole book of Romans. The way the, One of the reasons, chief reasons we know that a man is only justified by God's grace through faith is because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness long before any law existed. Why did the law come about? The Bible tells us the law was added because of transgressions. And the idea is men were sinful, so God codified and wrote down his law so man could see how he fell short of God and see that his only possible solution to his problem of his sin was to trust in a merciful and gracious God. The Pharisees, by pointing out that these guys who were plucking heads of grain and eating it when they were hungry on the Sabbath, they were turning the law into that system of religious justification that kept men in darkness. And so the law was not being properly handled. See, Jesus did not come to destroy the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. In what way? The law condemns us all as sinners. Jesus, as we just portrayed at his table, Jesus, when he shed his blood and offered his body and died on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the law in that the punishment, the just wrath of God against all law breaking and against all law breakers was poured out on Christ when he was on the cross. That's how Jesus fulfilled the law. He, in his own life, kept it perfectly, never sinned, the only one who ever did, 
So he fulfilled the law practically in his own life. But more than that, he fulfilled the law because the law demanded blood. The law demanded death. The law demanded judgment against all those who broke it. And Christ fulfilled the law when he died for our sins and rose from the dead. The wrath of God was satisfied when Jesus died on the cross. And here before it even happened, here are the religious leaders doing what they had done seemingly forever among the people. And that is wielding the law in such a way that people were kept in darkness because they were kept thinking, if I do this, if I do that, if I don't do this, if I don't do that, I won't be justified before God. Knowing that every one of us has broken the law so many times It's folly, pure folly for any one of us to think that we could justify ourselves by keeping the law. And so the spirit of the law, which was to teach a man his sin, was obscured for the sake of religious ceremony. That still happens today. It happens in church settings today. Personally, I think it's easy to point it out, having been a Roman Catholic before, it's easy for me to observe that and point that out in a sacramental system like that. But that's not the only place it happens. Even among, you know, you know the sacraments. You do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. You get baptized when you're born, you go through confirmation, you get to go to confession, and all the other things. And you do all these things, and these are what keep your place before God right. You're in the church and that's what keeps your place before God right. Now look, we exist in the evangelical world where we don't practice such a sacramental system, but we have to be careful that we don't unofficially develop our own little sacramental system and make all sorts of codes and requirements upon people's lives and demands upon people's lives. Look, there should be demands on our lives, right? We're called to walk worthy of the calling in which we're called. But we don't wield commands and laws over people's heads because a man is justified by God's grace when he believes the gospel. And so I think this sort of thing that the Pharisees are doing still happens today. That people are kept in darkness because they are given religious tasks by which they are told if they accomplish them, they'll be okay with God. That can happen in Roman Catholicism. It can happen in various forms of Protestantism. It can happen in Evangelicalism. It happens in other religions. It can happen in Islam. It can happen in Hinduism. It can happen in Buddhism. It can happen in Shintoism. It can happen under uh, um, um, other quasi-false forms of Christianity, Jehovah's Witnessism, Mormonism, where... You do this, you do that, and maybe you'll be one of the elect, maybe you'll be one of the 144,000 or whatever, whatever sorts of things they like to present to people, right? No. The point of God's law is to teach us our sins, and that's as far as the law can take us. It could bring us to the point where we have nothing left but, God, please be gracious and merciful to me, a sinner. That's why Jesus died, was to redeem those. And that's the point of the law. So, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do 
Now the second part of this is what? On the Sabbath. So now we get specifically to the part about the Sabbath. In verse 3, verse 4, we went through those verses and showed how the Pharisees were mishandling the law. And now on to verse 5, and we see Jesus specifically now gets into the issue of the Sabbath itself. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Again, what a brilliant insight and a brilliant reference to God's Word that is. What does that mean? Well, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? But if there's some sort of religious ceremony happening in the temple, who's performing that ceremony? The priests. How are they performing the ceremony? Well, they have to exert some labor to do so, right? And so there's a bit of a paradox there, isn't it? There's a bit of a quandary there, isn't there? No, there isn't any at all. If you understand what the law is. If the law is a system by which man justifies himself, then the priests who are the ministers of the law are themselves not justified because they're working on the Sabbath by performing their duties in the temple on the Sabbath. But it's not the case because... The law is not a system by which people justify themselves. The purpose of the law was to teach something. Was to teach of sin. And to teach of God's hatred of sin. And to teach of the immeasurably great offense that sin is to God. And the complete incapability of man to atone for it himself. So much so that even in the greatness of the law and all of its symbolism, even in that, the holy priests under the Lord profaned the Sabbath in the temple. Verse 6 says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than that temple. Right? So look, if the priests understand what he's saying, if the priests are permitted in the system of law to be in the temple working on the Sabbath, how much more is it okay for the disciples to be plucking grains and eating food on the Sabbath when the one who's greater than the Sabbath is standing right there with them? You understand? It's, 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 it's just, it may have gone over their heads. In fact, it did. I don't know if it went over their heads, but it at least went in one ear and out the other. Because all they cared about was the religious system, which kept them what? In blindness, which was tragic because by keeping the Pharisees in blindness, many of the people were kept in blindness. Verse 7. Remember when we studied Hosea on Thursday nights? So Jesus quotes maybe the most famous verse in Hosea right here. It says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. That's what they did when they said, hey, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They were condemning people who were guilty of nothing. This is what their mishandling of the law did. They were condemning people. The, the irony is the law condemns us all. But they were condemning people not in the way that the law was supposed to. 
the purpose of the law was to condemn us as sinners before God. They were using the law to condemn the people as religious congregants who were not keeping up with the system and doing everything that they were supposed to do. Right? Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Listen, it's one of the reasons why their ancestors, in their fathers in Israel, were taken away into captivity. Same thing. I mean, and listen, again, remember who he's talking to. When they, you know, when you or I read that, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, we have to kind of look in the margins or we have to like kind of look it up. Where, where does the Bible say that? You know, if you went through the Hosea study, maybe you recognize it or something like that. But listen, these religious Pharisees, when Jesus quoted that for them, they immediately would have known, oh, Hosea said that. And they would have known the story of Hosea. Hosea came and spoke that as a condemnation against the children of Israel, who eventually were what? Taken away into captivity. So Jesus is putting the Pharisees in the same place that the ultimately judged and carried away into captivity Israelites of the ancient world were in. Strong words. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Right? What is mercy? Mercy is when God takes pity upon those He has every right to be offended by. But He takes pity on us because He's full of love and He's full of patience. And He has made a way of salvation for us. And the religious leaders ought to, rec ought to recognize that the purpose of the law was to show people their sin that they might be turned to God for His mercy and for His love. What is sacrifice? Sacrifice is itself the religious act, the formal act of worship in a religious system was sacrifice. And yes, there were sacrifices in the law, but the sacrifices were not the end. The sacrifices were a means. And the Pharisees treated them as an end. The Pharisees interpreted the law in an absolute kind of way wherein those sacrifices were the, were the very object, the point of justifying oneself before God. But in fact, those sacrifices were a means to show the severity of the problem of our sin. Slain animal after slain animal, blood spilled here, blood spilled there on the altar to show the severity of our guilt because of our sin. They wielded the law wrong. They interpreted the Sabbath wrong. If you understood what Hosea said to your fathers, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned these men who were eating on the Sabbath. And then this statement, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Do I have enough time to unpack that one sentence? First of all, He claims Himself to be the Son of Man. He claims Himself to be Lord. And He claims Himself to be over the Sabbath. All three of those things are astonishing claims. 
right? I'll save some of the unpacking of it for next week, but, but let me just comment on this, this Lord of the Sabbath claim. What Jesus is saying is very similar to what he had just said when he said, in this place there is one greater than the temple. Jesus is revealing himself to be not merely a subject of the law, but the lawgiver himself. Jesus is revealing himself not just to be one who needs to understand and interpret and observe the Sabbath, but Jesus is the one who's the giver of the Sabbath himself. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's greater than the Sabbath. Right? Have you ever read the command concerning the Sabbath? There are a lot of things that the Bible says about the Sabbath, and this will probably be as much as we have time for today, and we'll come back and finish part two in two weeks, because you'll have a you'll have an interlude from Deacon Joe next Sunday morning, and then I'll come back in two weeks and finish this up. But maybe this is a good place to wrap it up. Turn to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. I want you to see something that I observed in my own study and preparation for this. We go over the Ten Commandments on a fairly... There's that alarm going off again. You guys really want me... I heard it, right? You heard it too? So You guys really want me to like... You're really trying to coax me to like keep things moving. I think I'm doing a pretty good job moving along here today, myself. All right, Exodus chapter 20. We go over the commandments. There are some observations about the Sabbath that need to be made. This will be the first one and the last one that I make today. But then in two weeks when we come back, there are some things we need to say about the Sabbath because... It's something that clearly the religious leaders in Jesus' day did not understand. And I believe it's something even that Christians today don't understand. A lot of them. Maybe not all of them. But I want us to understand it. In verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20 is the fourth commandment. And it says this. Let me just read the words. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy. What does holy mean? It means set apart. In other words, in other words, the Sabbath day ought to be set apart from the word Sabbath implies seventh. The word Sabbath means that and that it's holy means that it ought to be set apart from the other days. All right? Verse 9. He explains. You know, some of the commandments, like verse 13, you shall not murder. No explanation given. You shall not commit adultery. No explanation given. You shall not steal. No explanation given. Notice the Sabbath commandment. Long explanation given. We do well to understand what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. Look at this. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant. Not even your animals. Your cattle can't even work on the Sabbath. That, that, that must have been hard for the Pharisees, right? Walk around and check everybody's farms to make sure like the, the donkeys and the sheep and everything weren't rolling around or, 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 or trying to like scratch themselves on a tree or, or something. You know, you know, what do they do? You know, they, they, they tell an animal, stop, you're working on the Sabbath. 
nor your stranger who was within your gates. So even like a guest who was staying in your house had to observe the Sabbath. And here's the rationale, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and what? Rested. Rested. Rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Hallowed it means that He set it apart. He made it holy. So in what, what is the Sabbath supposed to be? It's not a religious, I will justify myself by not working day. It's rest. It's rest. It's not recorded in Matthew's account of this, but in Mark's account of this, and in Luke's account of this, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The brilliant statement, which I'll elaborate on more in two weeks. But when Jesus says that, really what he's doing is he's explaining the heart and the spirit of this commandment. This commandment was not given like any of the other of the Ten Commandments. It was not given strictly so there would be a religious ceremony by which people could justify themselves before God. This commandment is unique from all of the other commandments in that it is a commandment that is given where we are supposed to basically copy what God did. Not that God needed the rest, by the way, either. I mean, Jesus said, I'm always working and my Father is always working elsewhere, right? So, but the Lord created the heavens and the earth in six days, rested on the seventh and said, now I want you to keep that seventh day holy. I want you to rest one day and seventh. And Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, God in His sovereign provision and His goodness towards man, towards man who rejects Him, God in His sovereign goodness towards us said, you're not just going to work every day. You're going to rest. You need rest. You're going to like rest. You're going to enjoy rest. It's going to be good for you. And even I rested, so you're going to rest. It was made for man. Man was not made for it. In other words, God didn't create a religion and then create a bunch of people who could keep his religion and then they would be the, the ones who kept his religion would be okay. And the problem is, the Pharisees wielded their power towards the latter end. You understand what I mean? Jesus was trying to bring them back to the spirit of it all. what I just did was I opened the discussion about the Sabbath. And I'm itching to give it to you. But I need another hour, which, which I could take now and make you all very angry with me. Not all of you. Actually, some of you would probably like it. But, or I could wait and do it in two weeks and be respectful of the fact that, you know, you want to go home and have some rest. So, so, so but listen. No, that's just a joke. But listen. My point, though, is this. What is really the bottom line of this? The reason this is so important, the reason Jesus is relentless and says, go wash in the pool, pick up your mat and walk, to show them that they are wrong in the way that they are interpreting the law and interpreting the Sabbath, is we are saved by God's grace. 
We are not saved by religious merit or religious exertion on our own part. And when you throw commandments out at people and imply that they are condemned because they don't keep them, you're changing the gospel into something else. This is why the book of Galatians is in the Bible. Right? Because, and we'll get into some of that in two weeks. But the reason it's there is because even in the early days of Christianity, some of the Pharisees tried to impose circumcision and other elements of the law upon Gentiles who were coming in and receiving the Holy Spirit by believing the gospel. But this, this use of religious commandment for more than what God intended it for keeps people in blindness and changes the gospel so much that the Apostle Paul said, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. That's really what the importance of this is. The gospel is that you can't... Listen, the, the good news, good tidings of the gospel starts with an understanding of the bad news. The bad news is we've all broken God's commands and we can't justify ourselves by self-achievement, by religion, by anything. And the law is that which shows us that. But God loves us so much that He gave His Son and Jesus died for us and Jesus rose from the dead. And when He says, come to me and I'll give you rest, He's talking about rest, a ceasing from all of this religiosity and all of this trying to justify oneself before God and all of this trying to compare ourselves one to another. I'm better than Him. I'm better than... Listen, stop from it all and just receive Christ. Just believe, humble yourself, repent, acknowledge that you can't justify yourself and come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Come to God through the door. Come to God through the door of the sheep. Come to God through the way, the truth, the life. Come to God by believing on Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead. Jesus right away sees that the way they're wielding the law and the understanding of the Sabbath obscures what it is that He came to do. And He never lets up. He never lets up. And you and I are the blessed recipients of that understanding. We are saved by God's grace when we believe and no other way. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in rising from the dead. Oh, I'm just getting started. Two weeks from now, Lord willing, you get a good message from Joe next week, I know it. And then two weeks from now, we'll pick up with this thought and finish this off, okay? Stand up with me and let's close in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that we could be here today and we got kind of a foundation, the basics of the understanding of what's going on in this passage, but there's so much more to say in the richness of your doctrine, in the richness of your word. And I pray, Lord God, that what we've heard today and thought about today would be sufficient for today to just ground us in our faith, ground us in thanksgiving and joy over the fact that by your grace we have been saved through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, and Lord, what you accomplished when you died for our sins and rose from the dead. Let today's word, Lord God, build and strengthen the faith of your people and that we might walk in faith 
by faith and not by sight, that we might walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And I pray, Lord God, that we would forever and always be thankful that you have saved us by your grace. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.